Hello, everybody, and welcome to Game Changers. Um, I'm excited because my guest today is somebody that I kind of have known peripherally for a while, but um, but haven't really uh, talked business with. Hi, Jay. Game Changer. Okay, I, I have. Uh, there we go. <laughs> welcome, Jay. Nice to you, but everybody sees both of us, right? Is that everybody? Everybody sees both. You can't see both of us. Yeah, no, no, I see both. I just wondered to. It's so nice to look at you. I don't know if everybody had a look at me too. They're looking at you. They're looking at you too. And if you behave really well, I'll take myself out of it, and they'll only see you. <laughs> you don't want that. Well, I don't know about that, Jay. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited to have you here. I'm in the middle of reading your book. Okay, can you tell me, honky in the house? Do you know where the word honky originated? Yeah, well, I explain it in the, in the book. Um, you know, from my research, honky. It's an expression that, uh, you know, in the 40s when cars came in and white guys would pick up black girlfriends and go into a black neighborhood, they were afraid to get out of the car and go in, so they would honk the horn and the girl would come out. So it's kind of how the honky guy So there's a white guy honking his horn, you know. So you were the white guy honking your horn at the Jeffersons. Bit, you know, if you, the honky thing, if you watch the Jeffersons, George Jefferson called white people honkies. That, it was, he was always honky, honky, you know. So being white, uh, I was a honky in the in the house in the in the Jefferson's did, house. Did, did the actors call you honky? Well, no, 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 no. They, they <laughs> you were the boss. Yeah. Just in retrospect, you know, when I write the book, it's like, uh, no, we have no being a white guy that makes me honky. But that's not doesn't seem as bad, you know. I think people today think like that's the uh, white version of the N word or something, but. Uh, we never took, I mean, when Sherman said it, you know, I write in the book about how, what Sherman means by honky, what he says honky. And, and you know, in the Jeffersons, you would you would have the N-word, you know, we had the N-word a number of times. Generally, it'd be when Sherman or, or Cass would add live it, and we didn't stay away from it. It wasn't, you know, today, everybody's just so afraid of that. Even when they did the Jeffersons live in front of a studio audience, mm -hmm. which is, you know, the first time they did Norman and Jimmy Kimmel, and right. they believed they said at the beginning of the show, we're going to not change a word of the script, you know. But when they got to certain word, the N word, they bleeped it out. And Norman had said that they talked about that. I was surprised at Norman because Norman usually was not about bleeping words. But uh, I think the young people that were involved in the show these days, they thought it was such a, you can't say that. And it was a compromise that, well, okay, say it, but we'll bleep it. And, you know, rather than cut it up. Speaking of that, my daughter is very offended by my lack of political correctness. She corrects me all the time. Yeah, your yeah. Grandkids, do your granddaughters? Yeah, yeah. Well, my daughters, my daughters will correct me. And they'll, they'll, you know, you can't say that. You can't say this. That was the whole thing, though, in the 70s when Norman's shows came on. I mean, he would he would talk to, you know, when you saw Archie Bunker, when I first saw that show, it just blew me away. Here was this guy saying, uh, Spick and Jungle Bunny and Kike and I said, these, you know, the, the words you've heard before, but you've never heard them on television. We're going to go have chinks. Archie's the only one who ever said we're going to eat chinks. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah crazy. No, the first one I saw was Archie Meathead were talking about, he was talking about a, a guy he called a chink, you know, and Meathead says, you know, that's a, that's a slur. You can't. So what do you mean? He says, uh, besides the guy's not even Chinese, he's He's Japanese, you know, 
And then Archie says, well, what do you mean? You could tell the difference between, he says, yeah, yeah, of course I can tell the difference. He said, if two guys were standing here, you said, yeah, you'd say, which one of you is the Jap and which one is the chink? <laughs> so that was, and the whole thing with Archie, you know, that was, that was something you never, remember at the beginning of Ball in the Family, they would always have a disclaimer, like, you know, get your kids out of the room and uh, yes. you know, hear things that you never heard before on television. I can I mean, remember. You want to write for that show. I said, boy, this is satire, you know, it's satire and it's on TV. And I was coming out of the 60s when, you know, things were all about the, the war and race and everything was going down. I actually wanted to write write relevant comedy. When I came out to California from Ohio, the two big shows were Laugh-In and Smothers Brothers as far as relevant comedy goes. The sitcoms were Green Acres and Beverly Hillbillies, mm. Petticoat Junction, things like that, you know? Right. In 71, when, when, uh, I when I was thinking I wanted to write for Smothers Brothers, I was writing Smothers Brothers scripts and putting in writing jokes for laughing and stuff like that. Not, not really, uh, uh, you know, getting hired or getting anywhere. But when I saw on the family, I thought that's, that's what I want to write. That those are two of my favorite shows. Um, share a little tea with Goldie. Lee became a, has been a, a grown up friend of mine, a recent friend of mine, but that was like one of my, the Smothers brothers was like the greatest thing on television. And yeah, yeah. As was laughing, and I and I I've been reading your book, and and you talk about all of that. Were you politically, were you politically active when you were of age? Well, yeah, I mean, I I am proud to say I I marched in the uh, moratorium in San Francisco in '71. That was the big uh, the big march, you know. But I certainly was, uh, you know, anti-war and you know, uh, in favor of the. Black Panthers and all, all the racial stuff that was going down in the in the sixties. Did but, you have uh, a number in the draft? Did you have a number? Was that your time? Yeah, no, that was a that was an issue. You know, if a lot of people went went to college to avoid the draft, and then when you get out of college, you get get drafted. Uh, uh, that's a long story. I managed to get myself. Well, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I didn't what was actually. What's your number, Jay? Well, I didn't have, I don't remember the number. I, I got out of school right when they had the number thing. Mm -hmm. And I had a letter from my doctor. I had stomach issues when I was 18 and I had some surgery. And that kind of kept me out. I don't know if you know what ROTC is, but ROTC, sure. where I went to school, Xavier University, mm -hmm. Jesuit College, they had, you had to take two years of ROTC, Reserve Officers Training Corps. They, you know, were uniforms and the whole thing. And, uh, after six months, and I I knew all the rifle stuff because I had been in a outfit called the Cadets when I was at camp and all that stuff. But I thought that this war stuff is just. I remember when uh, the last ROTC class I went to, the captain who ran the class was telling about the new bullets they have. They don't just they hit you in the shoulder. They don't just go through the shoulder. They'll take your whole arm off. Oh my oh, god! Really, like this is really good, you know. And I thought, man, I don't know. I don't, I was like Muhammad Ali, you know, I don't have any fight with those Viet Cong, you know, like Ali would say, they never, nobody, no Viet Cong ever called me nigger. So he wasn't, he wasn't ready to go over and, and I didn't know, you know, and so there was a whole feeling of anti-war thing. In those days, you, you could look at somebody's hair and tell whether they were for the war or against the war, you know, if you had short hair, you were, it was like that. But I, I managed to get out of, you know, I could tell you a long story about, well, but anyway, basically, uh, yeah, I didn't have to go in. I was ready to go to Canada. In fact, if I got drafted, 
I was going to go to Canada instead. But okay, so that's well, let's talk about that for a second because you wrote the draft Dodger, the the episode of All in the Family, which I watched again today, which is as it feels almost as relevant because of the idiot in chief that we have uh, presiding in the White House. Um, it, it it was it was so ahead of its time, and and so beautifully written and executed. Um, was that motivated by your own experience? Well, certainly the times, you know, I originally, you know, I originally wrote a treatment. I went, I went to, when I saw All in the Family, like I told you, mm -hmm. I had never been to a taping or anything. My parents came out not long after that. I took them to see a taping of All in the Family. Norman did the warm up, mm -hmm. and I thought, this is great. This is what I, what I want to do, you know. I want to, I write about it in a book. I just felt like jumping over the rail and going down and telling Norman, I'm going to work for you. But instead I went, I went uh, home. I had, didn't have any TV credits at all, but I knew I wanted to do it. So I wrote a treatment. Uh, it's called the draft dodger about a guy. This is a story. And I had an agent who I knew at the time send it to, to tandem, which was Norman's company. And in a few weeks, you know, the message, the word I got back was they passed, you know, so that was that. And it wasn't until a couple of years later, a few years later, when I actually ended up working with Norman and the Jeffersons. And then the draft at that time, like 76, draft was a big deal because Carter was president and, and amnesty was a big question. Should he give amnesty to draft dodgers? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I thought, you know, maybe Norman probably never saw that treatment. And I got, now right. that I was on the inside, I know nobody reads treatments anyway. <laughs> so I just, uh, Made me, my partner and I were. I said, you know, told Norman like to pitch him in All in the Family. So we were working on Jefferson's, but they had just finished the season for All in the Family. So I waited. I knew they would need stories. Pitched the story to Norman. Norman loved it. In fact, as we came out of his office, it was just finished the, the, that season. He says to JD Joe, his secretary, he says, JD, uh, Jay just gave us a reason for doing next season. Uh, I've written that. That's, that'll be on my uh, my epitaph on my tombstone. But no, for me, Norman Lear was my idol. For Norman to say that about all in the family, that was like uh, it's a great thing. That it, it's huge. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, so tell us, Jay. So you you were in Ohio, Cincinnati, Cincinnati, right? Right. Uh, and and so what and what stars in your eyes in Cincinnati when you what what made you want to write comedy what inspired you, know, you? When I was a kid I remember watching like uh, Lucy you know I love Lucy mm -hmm. and at the end at the crawl one of the episodes I was just you know 10 or something it said writers and it just I'd never seen that before it was a, you mean they're right you mean there are people that write this stuff and hang out with Desi and Lucy all I just thought Lucy and Ethel were funny people or something <laughs> and then I thought you know that'd be a good job you know you could just hang out with with them and say funny stuff and write funny stuff and laugh all day. So from then on, it was like, uh, yeah, I want, that's what I wanted to do. Write, write for television. Wait, were you the class clown? Were you funny when you were? Well, I, I guess I tried to be, yeah. <laughs> were so, you uh, in school plays? Did you do any of that? Well, yes and no. Uh, you know, I wrote some sketches. I remember in the uh, eighth grade, we did a, you know, we had nuns and everything at the Catholic school and we had to write something about communism. So I wrote a, I wrote a thing about communism and uh, I played this, I played the drunk myself and then I cast, had some other guys play. Everybody, you know, said how bad communism was except for me. You know, I was just, <laughs> you know, who was just, yeah, I like communism. You don't have to go to work, you know, and you, you take, take care of you and all this. So um, stuff like that. Uh, 
in high school, I was in a couple plays, but I played, I had like one line in, in each of them and uh, like that. But, uh, but you did consider for a little bit trying your hand at stand-up. Is that, is that true? Well, you know, I always thought I would have liked to do that. In fact, you know, once we, the Jeffersons, when my partner and I became exec producers, the Jeffersons, we, I just, I ended up doing the warm-ups all the time. But um, the big thing, like I think I say in a book, like in the, in the seventies, uh, you didn't get paid anything for doing stand. I had a wife and kids. I married, got married in Ohio and came out here, had two kids out here. And, uh, and uh, plus, you know, the way that whole comedy thing is you, you got to start like at the comedy store, you don't go on until one o'clock in the morning. And uh, the whole lifestyle thing didn't seem to, to fit, you know? And, uh, but I, I always admired, I went down to, I'd hang out at the comedy store when I could and the improv and the ice house and saw the comics in those days, you know, Richard, Prior all the time, Robin Williams, uh, everybody. It was it was fun times then. And so, how did you how did you get that initial? I know that you wrote not for for TV first. You you did some right. writing. How, how, did, how did you break into television? How did that happen? Uh, well, let's see. I try to make it not boring because it didn't happen overnight. I knew I came out here. After four years, I wrote advertising copy and stuff for four years, mm -hmm. and I was always focused on. I, when I went to school, there was no uh, screenwriting classes. There was nothing like like that. If you told people in Ohio you wanted to write comedy for a living, they just look at you like you're nuts. <laughs> but uh, I, I kind of that's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And after four years of of writing this other thing, the company where I was working was moving to Irvine. Uh -huh. if, you didn't, if you didn't, they were moving down to Orange County. And you could, if you didn't go with them, you got six months uh, severance. So I thought that's pretty good. I'll take that and I'll work on, on writing. And uh, after, over those four years, I was always trying to figure out, you know, uh, what a writer does, what a director does, what a producer, how the business works. The three things I figured out was if you wanted to be a comedy writer, you need a spec script, mm -hmm. sample your work, not something you're ever going to sell, but something that shows you can write. Right. And, and you need a, um, an agent because they won't read stuff unless your agent sends it or you need, and you need a partner. So right. I said to kind of do those three things. And uh, I don't tell you to bore you with how, how I met Mike Milligan, who uh, we partnered up and we wrote for about a year uh, without actually selling anything. Good Times was the first thing we sold. So we, we heard from our agent, who we managed to get an agent at the time, Lou Weitzman, and Lou said, good times, was just came on the air, was looking for stories. And uh, I'd read a thing in Psychology Today about William Shockley, who was a Nobel Prize winning guy who said that blacks were, were inferior to whites intellectually, just an innate thing. And a black professor had written an intelligence test called the bitch test, black intelligence, cultural homogeneity, and whatever it was in it. And uh, white people take the bitch test and fail it, you know. So it was a matter you pointed out the difference in culture. You know, these tests are kind of. And so the idea we pitched at Good Times was Michael, if you remember the kid on Good Times, you know, mm -hmm. Ralph Porter. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was kind of the militant midget, his dad called him. So he refused to take an IQ test at school because they were, uh, they were, uh, you know. Racist. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, exactly. So, uh and we pitched it to Alan Mannings, who was the exec producer. We didn't. Norman loved the idea. We never actually met with Norman. And then we wrote it. That was our first, first 
script that we actually sold was a good time show. And so the spec script that you write, is it true that when you write a spec script, you don't write it for the show you want to write for, you write right. it for another show, correct? Right, because if you write it for the show you want to write for, the people that write that show are going to tear it apart. They, you'll, you can never capture exactly what, you know, you want to say. If you write a, uh, in those days, like you write a Mary Tyler Moore show, you want to show it to uh, Happy Days or something, you know, because they'll be, the writers are going to read it, They'll right. be working all the time. They don't really know the Mary Tyler Moore characters that well. But if you write a Happy Days and give it the Happy Days, they're going to go, well, you know, that's basically the way it works. So we had, we had actually written an Odd Couple script in those days. That was our Odd Couple. I think we had a MASH script. Those were our, were our uh, spec scripts, you know. I read that you didn't really like MASH. You weren't a big fan. Yeah, well, I, I wasn't, you know. Don't tell Ken Levine. but uh, I, I love Ken. I won't tell him. <laughs> No, I mean, I yeah. You have to read the book, and you'll see what what I say. That's one reason I wrote it in third person. Because if uh, Ken says, "Well, why didn't you? Why didn't you got to get Smith?" and I say, "Well, that was Murph. That wasn't me." <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but anyway, the the uh, yeah, we wrote a good time, and that's that's kind of it starts like that. And in the book, and I explain every step. I think it's you know, I wrote the book thinking that if I were wanting to write comedy now, I'd want to read a book. Like I'd want to read a book by somebody who said exactly what happens when he comes to Hollywood. And that's pretty much what I tell in the book, you know? So, so you got to meet Norman through good times, which brought you back. Yeah, so yeah we really didn't meet Norman then. You know, it's interesting. I didn't tell you this quickly. The guys, we wanted to write for All in a Family. An agent that said to us, you guys belong at MTM. Mm -hmm. I said, we want to write for Norman Lear. So this is before we had credits or anything. He set up a meeting with Don Nickel, Mickey Ross, and Bernie West, uh -huh. NRW. They were the writing for All in the Family. They were the guys with Norman who won all the Emmys at All in the Family. So that was a big day when we got a call and said, Lou, we got to meet. Lou said, we got it. So we went down to CBS, went to Farmer's Market, at lunch with Don Nickel, Mickey, and Bernie. We told him we wanted to write for all in the family, thought it was the best thing on television. And we all had a great time together. And this was after, this was when hiatus just started, after they finished one season. So our agent calls and says, you know, they really like you guys. And when they come back, they'll probably give you an assignment or two. And so we thought, though, stupidest thing we ever thought was, uh, you know what, we'll, while they're going, we'll write a script. We'll take a month. We'll write a script. We'll knock them off their stuff because we wanted to be on staff. We said we wanted to hire some staff. Right. Yeah, we gave, we, you know, we, our agent never should have let us do this. But he handed the script, said it to him when they came back. And we got a note from Don Nickel, Mike and I, that said, uh, you know, I kind of remember the way it was like, uh, you guys are talented, but I want the family's not the only pebble on the beach. And that was it. And so it was like, oh, well, that, that's gone. We'll never work for them. And uh, I could go on from there, but that's how we, we hadn't met Norman yet or anything. And so I, I, I was just uh, reading when you, uh, when you had your first, when you guys had your first script produced and you were sitting in the, in the audience. Yeah, that was good times. So tell yeah, us we, about that. Yeah, well, we went to the table, we took our wives and all, you know, and we were excited. They introduced us as the writers. And we're sitting there the first couple of minutes, so we didn't recognize any of the dialogue. And we're going, maybe we were at the wrong week or something. Like, no, they introduced them. And they were, all of a sudden, they were, saw the sign that said, Happy Birthday, Michael. And it was 
Michael's birthday in our script, we figured, well, we only have one birthday. And we were like three lines of it. The story was exactly the same, and it, the structure was the same, but the lines were different. And the, the takeaway there was we were on a right on staff because you realize things get rewritten, you know? And uh, so from then on, it was like we're looking to write on staff. We wrote a couple of shows after that for That's My Mama, if you're that far in the book yet. And uh, I don't know if you want me to go on, but that's that's uh, yeah. So, so go through the so, how did you guys get to be staff writers? How did you go from well, and that's my mama. We weren't really staff writers, but they gave us an office after we wrote one script and pitched them a second script, and they liked it. And they, they found out we were writing in a motel together. They said, Why don't you guys come? And so, it was kind of felt like being on staff, but it wasn't staff. So, after that's my mama, I think we wrote a we wrote a mod before we wrote Jefferson. We met with Schiller and Weisskopf. We still hadn't met Norman. And and the Jeffersons now became, you know, Don Mickey and Bernie, Nickel Ross and West. they created that show, and Norman had them running that show. Mm -hmm. And they, their first season was, was in the spring. It was like a 13-episode season, you know. Mm -hmm. And we watched Jefferson's, but we actually got a letter, I think because we wrote for – we were probably on some list because we wrote a good times because our agent called and said, you know, you're invited to pitch if you want to pitch to Jefferson's. And so we did, we went in and pitched to the story editors, Lloyd and Gordon at the time, Lloyd Mitchell and Gordon Turner or Gordon Mitchell and Lloyd Turner. And then we pitched the story. I'd read in uh, time magazine that uh, about uh, adopted kids tracing their parents, which was a big thing at the time. It was new that you could actually try to trace your parents Right. We applied it to the Jefferson and said, well, what if Louise gal shows up at the door and says to Louise, that's, that's, you know, you're my mother. And, and it happened to be when George was in, in uh, Korea at the time that the kid was born and all. So we pitched that to them and they liked it. And uh, uh, Gordon, Lloyd and Gordon's story editors said, well, they, you know, they, they, they went and pitched it to NRW and then they called us back and gave us notes so we wrote the first draft and then the then don nickel called an agent and wanted to meet with us in rw and uh, we went down to meet and that's the first time we saw them since this lunch right you know right and and gordon and lloyd weren't in the meeting and it was just nrw and us and we thought we don't know if that's good or bad but they're going to give us notes and he said uh, we like script and we want to move it up because uh uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to shoot it as our third script for the second season, whatever. But that, then, they, you know, they never said like, hey, we see you guys again. Nice lunch. And we didn't say anything. We just, they were just focused on a script and we just right. went to work. And, uh, and it was really, then they hired us on staff. So that's how we got on staff. Yeah. So. Uh, I have so my coach here telling me not to get in the weeds, my. When did you uh, when did you meet Norman? How did how did you find? Well, that's an interesting story too. With when we started working with Don Mick and Bernie, uh, they they were like Norman kind of let those guys more freedom than any of his other shows because they mm -hmm. would work for so long. But they were still clearing stories with Norman, so they took us up a couple times and we met with Norman. And uh, Norman, they, after we met with him next day, Don said Norman liked you guys. And that meant a lot just to hear that. So uh, we pitched, I'd read in Ebony Magazine. In those days, you could, Norman did issue-oriented comedy, you know, so you could look in a magazine and see what was going on. And I read in Ebony Magazine that uh, suicide 
the highest rate of suicide in the country was among black women. And, wow. and so, you know, I thought Florence is a, is a maid. She wasn't a regular character on the show yet. Mm-hmm. So we went to Mickey and we went to Don, Mickey and Bernie, you know, and Mike and I, and we pitched them the suicide thing and they did, boy, they didn't want a suicide, you know, like you guys daft, you know, and they, it's funny because when they left all in the family, they had done all these shows. And I think they were now in a, these are the guys who created three's company later. So they were in a frame of mind that, you know, they just wanted to company. And so company. they didn't want to hear all suicide. They said, you know, come back with something else. So we came back with some other couple ideas and two of them, they kind of sparked to and they said, okay, you guys go pitch those two to Norman. Mm-hmm. So we went out and pitched two ideas, you know, to Norman and Norman was like, well, you know, not real. He said, you got anything else. And so I said, you know, I was reading Ebony magazine and black suicide. Oh, Norman loved that idea. You know, Norman, we, Florence, oh, Florence, yeah, the, the help brings problems into the house. And, you know, it's all in the book there, right? Mm-hmm. So now he's loving the show that these, that our bosses hated. So we got to go down and, and tell them, you know, we go down, Mike and I, and uh, they say, how'd it go, Norman? And so we tell them that, boy. It was like a wall, you know, no smile. The three of them, Don just says uh, three words. He says, uh, go write it. It was like a dare, you know. They didn't talk to us for two weeks. When we went to the wow. room, and we, we, we got nose and glasses and wore the nose and glasses. I mean, we, were so, we didn't know what facial expression to show because if you if they see a smile and it's like we're cocky or something because we run around their head. And if they see us sad, it's like, or they don't, you don't want them to see worry, like, oh, shit, we'll never make this funny. So uh, they, they, for two weeks, though, we, we wrote this first, we did some research, wrote the first draft. Norman, by the way, gave us the beginning when we were meeting with him. He was saying, she's cleaning everything. You know, Florence was a character who George is always criticizing because, so he opens with, she's happy, she's cleaning. And he was right, you know, when, a lot of people, when they decide they're going to kill themselves, mm-hmm. she's, made a decision. She's going to see God and it's all, you know, no more problems. And meanwhile, she's going to, so anyway, we wrote this script to gave it to Don Mickey and Bernie and waited, you know, one day, two days, didn't hear any third day, you know, Mike and I are ready to pack up our desk and, you know, write a suicide note or something. <laughs> so, uh, I said, you know, hell, I'm going to go down. So I went down to Don and I said, a chance to read the script. He said, yeah. So what do you think? And he said, not bad. So it's, it's Don Nickel to say not bad about a script. I ran back to Mike. I said, he said, not bad. <laughs> so anyway, we shot the show and it was pretty much like it was written. It was great. Wow. And the fact that it had so many laughs, it was just, it was the one show I talk about in the book. The engineers didn't even sweeten. They didn't realize that it wasn't, it wasn't sweet. We just had. Wow. Laughs. And, uh, you know, it was a typical, I have to salute Norman. I mean, one, because he wanted to, do a show like that, and two, because he really, that's what I learned from watching All in the Family the first time I saw it, that you could have a show, you could blend comedy and drama, and I never thought you could do it. I thought comedy was comedy and drama. He showed you that, you know, you could be laughing one minute and tears in your eyes the next. That was a revelation for me as a writer, you know. So I always wanted to do that kind of thing, and now if you look at what I write about the Jeffersons and, and our stories and stuff, we kind of, Mike and I tried to have, you know, cogency and comedy is what, when they, when the review and TV guide of the, the IQ test, mm-hmm. wrote that review said it was at a nice blend, that episode of cogency and comedy. And I thought that would be a good, a good goal for us to, you know, our, our brand will be cogency and comedy. So. 
I love that. On, on IMDb that it credits you and Norman for writing the draft dodger. Did, did he have a part in that process? Well, yeah, sure. Norman had a part in the draft dodger. I mean, he, yeah, he, he did. And so, you know, uh, we went and pitched the thing. I told you that was in the spring and we, mm -hmm. Could have gone and started right. We knew that you know whatever we do now is going to get rewritten and rewritten. We're just going to wait till it gets close to the fall and they're going to shoot this thing. Right. And we we met with uh, Moore Lockman, who was the executive CEO, and the family had their writers. Moore Lockman was the head of that show, and we met actually Mike and I met with Norman again before we started writing. And Norman, um, yeah, if you read it, it's all in the book. But Norman mentioned uh, Archie's friend, the Gold Star father. Is at dinner. So Archie's friend was Pinky and all in the family. And Pinky has a friend who died in Vietnam. So Archie's going to have dinner at the bunker house with, with uh, Meathead's friend who's from Canada, come down for Christmas to visit his mom. He's a draft dodger. He ends up at Archie Bunker's place. And then also Archie has this friend whose son was killed in Vietnam. And I was, the first thing I thought was, well, that's pretty coincidental. You know, that is that really too much? Mm. And then it hit me as like, well, Geez, why didn't we think of that? You know, that was Norman's big contribution to that show, which makes for the scene you saw. Uh -huh. then, you know, after we wrote our draft, of course, the All in the Family guys, you know, they they took their shot at it because that's the way these things work. So, but certainly uh, Norman uh, and others in All in the Family had some. I think that sh the script wasn't the greatest thing in the world, but the actors really made it great. You know, you watch the. It was Carol and, and Rob Reiner and and Gene. It was just I actually, as I write in the book, I sat next to Nancy O'Connor at the original taping that you watched today, and tears were running down her cheek. You know, this is Carol's wife. Oh, you know, an emotional show. Very you know, they, what a beautiful they, ending. I'm not going to give it away, but what a beautiful ending. Oh my god. Yeah, I know. Uh, Cindy Beagle, who I have to shout out to, had mentioned the, uh, she said, be sure to mention when you talk to Vicky, Vicky about the uh, the, norm, the goddamn that was ad lib in the, in the show. I don't know if you've gotten that far reading in the book. No, no, but I don't know about that. You watch the show, and if originally when we taped it, uh, Carol Connor, Carol ad libs goddamn war. So he says, I'm not talking about that goddamn war. And the network said, got to take that out. And Norman said, no, nah, we're going to leave it. And Carol, Carol insisted that they leave it because wow. it was really an emotional thing. It was just they had lived. And it really, I mean, the audience at that point was just. But the oh, network God. insisted. I got I got copies of the you know network note in the in the book and everything. But they insisted. That, and said, what do you, you know, Norman tried to argue. Like, well, you can't say goddamn war. What, what can you say? And they say, it's, it's, it's the word God. You know, anything. said, anytime we have God. In any kind of possibly sacrilegious form, we get letters from everyone. That's the one the network stayed away from. Carol O'Connor actually flew to to uh, New York to see William Paley, who ran CBS at the time, trying to talk him into leaving that goddamn. Long story short, we had a we ended up taking it out. We had a fly in Rottendam. So if you watch the taping now, you can see his lips say "goddamn," but it, it almost it matches. It says Rottendam. I'm not talking about that Rottendam war. But you really, it didn't hurt the show. You don't really, you wouldn't right. know it unless they told you probably. So. Well, I mean, I didn't know it was supposed to be in there, and I thought the whole episode was brilliant. But now that you've said that, I want to go back and watch it. W where is it in the episode? 
right at the, the climax where they're, when he finds out that he's having dinner and his friend's son dies having dinner with a draft dodger. And Archie goes nuts. He wants a draft dodger out of there. And uh, he see, Edith says, you know, I'll let him stay. And she says, uh, he says, Edith, we're going to, you know, the FBI will be coming here and throw it, you know. He says, oh, we, Edith says, we don't have enough food for them. <laughs> you know, it's just, if, so you're trying to combine this. But it was a very, at that time, in 76, that was an issue. People were on both sides of it. In fact, we got letters, and I print two of the key letters we got. We got all kinds of letters, and they were 50-50. I mean, I thought after watching that show, uh -huh. you're going to be siding with Rob Reiner. You're going to be siding, you know, giving the draft dodgers amnesty. But we got, you know, 50% of the people said, right on, Archie, you know. Wow. So out of there. And the other 50% was saying, you know, I was really moved and really Wow. So, so it's true that you would look at magazines and newspapers to get ideas for shows because writing we got a lot of ideas. Yeah. And it works there because, you know, if you were doing another kind of show, I mean, uh, certainly like MASH. I mean, one thing I MASH, I mean, at the time it takes place in the Korean War, it's in the fifties or something. Right. No black, no black people in it. You know, black people were a big part of the sixties and the seventies. Right. And, and they're, they're uh, you know, I say in the book, uh, I mean, it's uh, just these wise guy frat boys who are, uh, I mean, uh, you, you wouldn't look in the paper for ideas about, you know, maybe you look in the 50s and Marilyn Monroe's going to make an appearance at the guys in Korea. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, that was a good thing about writing for Norman shows. We always felt that we were doing relevant stuff and stuff that would. Hold up. I remember, you know, I would say to Mike, my partner, you know, this, these shows are going to be right. He said, no, nah, you know, we're just writing them now, though. But uh, no. it's amazing to me, you know, Jefferson's is relevant now, thanks to Norman and Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, they've been doing these the Jeffersons and Good Times and All in the Family. It's, you know. So I hear, I hear Nancy back there. So uh, before we move on to more showbiz stories, so you guys are grown-ups in love. What do you call each other? Because we have this conversation every day on my show. <laughs> the whole idea of boyfriend, girlfriend, what do you call each other? Well, I call her my one and only. Oh. Or my, or my better half, you know? Okay. And what does Nancy work? Those seem to work so far. I don't so And what does Nancy call you? What do you call me? My partner. Yeah, let her get on camera. So. No, no. My partner is fine. Nancy, come stick your head in for a second. For the Come on. Yeah, I love her so much. And they <laughs> were, I love you more. Anyway, she's the best. She's my this lover. Is, this, this is why she's 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 and uh, as long as I keep writing, uh, maybe she'll stay with me. So it took me almost three years. She finally, she goes, you're, not, you're still not finished? Aren't you finished yet? So I figure I better finish it. But anyway, yeah, we, but yeah, that's the problem. What do you guys call each other? You're, you know, so I, you know, I call him my boyfriend. If it, it, He was my boyfriend. You know, it just seems so juvenile and wrong for a middle-aged person. I, I haven't found the right word. Bo doesn't, I don't know, guy. I don't know. It, it's, it's awkward. It's, it's weird. I don't know. When, you, when you're going to introduce you, you know, your girlfriend to your grandkids uh, when you're my age, that's the like, uh, yeah. I wanna, <laughs> hey, my grandkids, who's my girlfriend? Man? Oh, I, right I, I, you see a lot of eyes rolling, I'm sure. 
right. Yeah, well, look, of course, they all love Nancy. I'm, I'm at Phil Rosenthal's movie night. Yeah, I, I, I was, you know, we're just, we've been together just about five years. And since we, since we met us, I've always been waiting for five years. That was, I wanted to wait because then it feels like a real, you know, I mean, in LA, really, it's two years is common law, but five years, you know, you really. Wait a minute. Work. I heard in LA, there yeah, is yeah. no common law in LA, actually. Cindy, uh, who told me there was no common law in LA, Cindy Peek. Well, that was a joke. I mean, in two okay. years, but you know, it's like two months here. I don't know. Yeah. Um. So, so Cindy, just I just noticed she put up a question, and she said, "Do you have any mod stories for us?" <laughs> well, you know, not we had we had a great meeting at all in the book about when we first met. I don't know if you know Schiller and Weisskopf, but those guys are legends, legendary writers. And we pitched an idea called Viv's about, you know, once again, on the cover of Time magazine, the picture of a dog. And it was about pet funerals, you know, and how people get carried away and, and have these elaborate pet funerals. So we pitched this idea to Schiller and Weisskopf, but they they turned it around and everything, which, which you hope, when you go in to pitch a story, you want to hear, you're trying to interest them. And if they are interested in any of it, if they say something like, well, we might have something here. That's like a writer. Oh, this sounds great. So we came out with this uh, story where Maud is watching Viv's dog and the dog dies while Viv's out of town. So uh, anyway, we wrote, Mike and I wrote the story. Rod Parker, who was producing the show, wanted to, uh, he cut us off at story. You can get cut off after story. And he had uh, Charlie Hopp, who was on staff, write the show. So I don't have any great stories, although Sean Weisskopf felt so bad. They felt like we did. This is the best story I know we ever write. We get cut off and somebody else writes it. But uh, they said when they went to uh, they went to Israel to speak, they took the, guy, the Viv's dog story with them. That's the one they showed to the people in Israel. But, oh, sweet. And actually, your girlfriend or your your a better half or whatever you want to call her, she's somebody that could be somebody that could go over the top for a pet funeral, couldn't she? I mean, I know how much Nancy is attached to, yeah, her babies, right? So, um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, too. so, so, Jay, let's talk about the Jeffersons because this this is so much the honky in the house. So. How how did that happen for you, and what was that initial experience like for you? Um, that was a big responsibility for the honky to be the one leading that brigade there. Well, yeah, I mean, we the, the thing is, we actually the, the writers who were on that show was it was Nickel Ross and Wes, and then Gordon and Lloyd, and then Mike and I, and so there were five of us, and we were all white guys, and uh, you know, I write about that in the book, and I really address it. It's better to read it in the book than they have me talk about it. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I, well, yeah, I don't know if you, if you got that far in the book or if you I haven't yet, but was there dissension because no, no, there was no dissension on that, that show. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was, it was just a, an ideal show to work for, you know, good times was a different story. They were on the same lot and I would go over and watch good times and, uh, you know, everybody, they would all, you know, Jimmy Walker would stand here and the rest of the cast would stand over there. And there was a lot of friction oh. between, uh, especially between John and uh, John Amos and Esther Roll and Jimmy. I think, you know, I, I, I tried to be real affectionate about it when I wrote it. I mean, it, it was a great show. It was the first black show on TV. Mm -hmm. We were thrilled that it was the first show we wrote. But I think 
as I mentioned in the book, I think they, you know, you had John Amos and S. Roll, both who were skilled, talented actors, and they were being upstaged by this young kid who was a comedian. Yeah. And he was getting the laughs and, you know, they, but they weren't happy over there. As you know, finally John quit. And that's a whole other story. Um, and, uh, and, but on the Jeffersons, you'll read about it. On the Jeffersons, everybody loved everybody. It was the greatest show. And, you know, Sherman and Sherman Hemsley identified with like the lowest guys on the totem pole. So when Mike and I first started there, Sherman would come in our office and sleep on our couch and hang out with us. Aww. And uh, his driver, who was uh, David Hoberman, his driver at the time, mm -hmm. told me if you're looking for Sherman, he'd come in our office and look. Uh, David Hobie, by the way, went on to become president of uh, Walt Disney. I don't know if you know David. He was wow. Sherman's driver at the time. Wow. But, um, yeah, Sherman. Well, you know, sure, the beautiful thing about Sherman was when we had dinner at, at um, tape night, you know, between shows. Mm -hmm. First gentleman would put a plate of food together and take it down to the security guard. I mean, I read it, you know, how can you not love a guy like that? You know? That's really beautiful. And all, you also hired women. I mean, Cindy was on your staff, which was. Well, Cindy, yeah, Cindy was uh, actually didn't meet Cindy. She spent a lot of time with Gary Marshall. Yes, she, she did. not get her away from Gary. She loved Gary. Mm -hmm. She loved him. <laughs> and no, Gary, Cindy actually, we met. At a later time, see, Mike and I started on the Jeffersons at the lowest guys. We were assistant story editors, then we became story editors. Eventually, we became producers. And then, when Dynamic and Bernie left to do Three's Company, they made us exec producers. We got their parking spots, which were right outside the special five in front of the building. It was great. So we went through the whole thing. That's kind of the great story of the Jeffersons. And when I write it in the third person, it's like I can enjoy it looking at this kid who who starts out, you know, and becomes executive producer of, of what becomes a number one show. Well, we did a spinoff. Uh, Mike and I wrote a Florence spinoff called Checking In, mm -hmm. which is a whole other story, which you write about in there. But uh, that's when we hired uh, uh, Cindy and Lisa Kite on the staff of Checking In. We only did like four episodes that, that mm -hmm. were aired. And then I worked with Cindy again when we, we worked with Cosby in New York. This was in the 90s. And Mike and I were doing Cosby, and uh, we asked Cindy to come and, and help us out. It was a, it was a spinoff of Cosby with Malcolm Jamal Warner. Mm -hmm. Cindy probably remembers more about that show than I do. Uh, I'm sure she does said that to ask you about the story about her meeting Cosby, because she said, your story's a divergent. Yours is probably correct. So Mine is correct, I'm sure. That's like the one thing I remember. I remember Cindy came over. It was great to see her. And and uh, Kaz happened to be on the set. And, mm -hmm. uh, we were doing a rehearsal. And uh, and so I thought, oh, this is, yeah, I'm impressed, Cindy. I'll introduce her to uh, Kaz. No, but I, I, you know, introduced her to Kaz. And I said, you know, this is a new writer, Cindy Beagle. This is Bob Newhart. And, yeah. you know, Cindy and, and Kaz laughed a little. The idea was always to get, if you could get cause to laugh a little, mm. then you could keep your job. <laughs> when I first met Kaz, uh, Mike and I, we got hired by NBC to go to New York, but we had not met Bill at all. And we're on a stage. We go on a stage, and there's Cosby across the stage, and there's other people. And nobody from NBC is introducing us or anything. So I just went over to, to Kaz and said, uh, you know, I am Jay Moriarty. You know, I'm going to be 
right, right and working with him. I'm, I'm not sure. Everybody in the office, by the way, would call him Mr. Cosby or Dr. Cosby, you know, all the people that work. I said, I, I'm not sure what to call you, uh, 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 Dr. Cosby or God. And, <laughs> and he said, you know, Bill will be okay. So, but, yeah. uh, so Jay, knowing yeah. him the way you did, was it surprising when everything came out about him? Were you surprised? Yeah. Well, I was I was surprised not about the fact that there were other women, but the drugs are what really surprised me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, there was really no sign of that. Cosby, in fact, he was great to us. Uh, I, at the time, was even thinking of writing a story about my love affair with Bill Cosby, which would take on a different thing. But Bill, yeah. he treated uh, my partner, Mike Milligan, and I so well. He actually went on uh, – he was on – Arsenio at the time and mentioned our names, you know, and he didn't mention any writers' names usually, you know. He, wow. he, he had a habit of going through writers. But uh, he actually said the only man who ever sent me uh, uh, two dozen roses, he sent Mike and I each two dozen roses because we wrote this, he pitched us a script that uh, we end up writing and he liked. In fact, his driver had said something that made sense when we started. He said, you know, don't listen to anything Bill says unless he says it twice. And so when <laughs> Bill said something twice, we decided. But uh, we, it, Bill was really great to us, and uh, he's, a, he's a good guy. And I grew up, but, uh, yeah, I was stunned. I think everybody was stunned, weren't they? How did you feel when you heard that about Bill Cosby, or did you hear rumors already? I don't know. Yeah, I actually met him on the street in New York one day. I was speed walking in front of his house. He was up by the by the West Side Drive there, and I was you walking. Were you a drink or anything? Or uh, he was. He was very friendly, actually. <laughs> yeah. I can I can believe he would be. Yeah, just don't let him get you near. Uh, so that made a little less surprised. And uh, one of the Playboy uh, playmates who came forward, Victoria Valentino, was somebody that used to come to Women Who Write and. She told her story very passionately, and I believed her. So um, yeah. it was very disappoint. It's very disappointing. It's very disappointing because I, as a as a comic, I adored him. You know, I, I, I so it was very. Disappointing. You know, as a comic, and that's one thing that kind of I think the hypocrisy really that, that Bill should, you know, Bill would criticize comics, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy. Uh, Chris Rock, guys who would use a certain language that he thought, you know, if you're black, you got an image to, you got to keep your integrity. And uh, he came down on the set one time when Malcolm and uh, Malcolm played a college kid, actually modeled after Bill's son Ennis, who was uh, working with some kids. But he was a college kid. He had a couple college buddies. This was in the show that we were rehearsing, mm-hmm. and they're the one talking like guys, you know, they're talking streak. Of, hey, sup's up? What's up? Cosby hears that, boy, he just blew. He says, what are you guys, college guys? You went to college? You're talking like this? And he was always with the language, and, and especially if you're black, you have to speak. And then he goes and does, you know, let's talk about keeping up an image. You know, it's, it's the hypocrisy is really yeah. – comics, uh, well, he was he was outed by a comic, you know, you know that. Did you and, not believe it when you first heard about it? What, what's that? Did you not believe the stories when you first heard it? Well, I didn't believe or disbelieve, but I think what happened is apparently uh, Hannibal Burris mentioned about the rape thing, you know. It's like, don't talk to me about my, my language. At least I don't rape women or whatever. And and when you look it up online, see, that's another thing. I don't think if there was social media, this would have come out the way it did. 
Mm. Start checking in and then people start giving their stories Mm -hmm. and one thing led to another and now Bill's in jail and Trump's president, you know. (laughs) The world is upside down. If you you had told me 10 years ago that 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 would be the case, you know, Kaz is in jail and Trump is president, I'd say I'll take that bet. So, uh, yeah, I just read something about him. He's uh, there's something new in his case going on right now. I can't remember right now what it is, but it's really I- a shame. It's, it's so it's so sad. And uh, I think if Bill, you know, I don't know, you know, what do I know? But uh, if, I, if I were Bill, if Bill would have laid himself and say, you know what, I, I screwed up. I made a mistake. I was doing this. I was doing that. I wasn't thinking. And I'm so sorry. People would forgive him. But he still insists, you know, he didn't do anything, and it's, that's not a yeah. good place, I don't think. No, not a good place. I feel sorry for, you know, uh, his wife and the whole thing that they have to that they have to pretend that they don't know or whatever, you know. It's, it's did you did um did your parents um did your parents live to see your success? Well, yeah, if you call uh, producing the Jeffersons a uh, success and Dear John, we worked on Dear John. My parents came out to see that, and the cast and all that stuff. So, yeah, they, they basically. Were they worried for you when you were going to go out to Hollywood to be a writer? I mean, you didn't oh, have yeah. any money. And... Oh, yeah. yeah. We, I got married and had no job and then right out of college. So let's get married and go to California. That's where I want to live. And that's where uh, I had been there once with my family when I was 17. We did a. You know, it's like out of uh, the Waldens or something. Everybody's my grandma and everybody packing up suitcases, tying them on the roof, and, and going out to California. And I, the weather was—I was like, "Why doesn't everybody live here? You know, why don't we live in California? Well, your dad doesn't have a job here. And I, and I grow, I'm getting a job here. So that was the land of milk and honey. But yeah, they—they they were like probably a lot of guys who do this come out there, right? I was like. Dad was like, you know, if you want you get a job around here, you know, I can get you a job. I know people. You don't know anybody out there. Who, how are you going to get? But, um, you know, you got to be crazy. Well, you know, from showbiz, I mean, you must have your story of, you know, and you, people must have been, say, what, I want to be an actress. Oh, yeah. Well, they're still, my mother's still wondering when I'm going to have my success. So, that, so we're, we're still having that conversation. Yeah, I don't think they really ever looked at my thing as a success. My dad wanted me to be a priest, so if I was, also I wasn't a priest, I really wasn't a success. Okay, so now I read about that. So now, what? How did you feel about becoming a priest? Well, I was, you know, when you're young, your nuns are telling you you have a vocation. Everybody, that means you got to, you know, God wants you to be a priest. And if you if you believe all the stuff, you go, well, geez, we're all trying to get to heaven. And I guess if you're a priest, that'd be the best way, right? You get right to. Right there. My mom would always say about everything, you know, that you'll get, if you do this, you'll get a higher place in heaven, you know, oh, I'll get a higher place. But, you know, eventually you get to where you start was wondering. Was you seriously considered? What did I? Well, yeah, at the time, I even, you know, it's kind of crazy. And like I say, when I look back, that's why I could write in the third person because I don't, sometimes I don't know who I was. But when I was a senior in high school, I was still, I was actually planning to go into the seminary after uh, high school and we had to get up and, and tell the class where we were going to go, where we were going to go to college. And I got up and said, I was going to seminary and everybody's laughing the whole time, you know, <laughs> it started, it started hitting me that geez, I guess you know, these guys tell me something. I don't I know. Like there's no way I'm going to make it as a priest, but uh, 
I, I was being dead serious, but uh, I said, you know, I tell my girlfriend and ah, they were laughing. Yes. But uh, yeah, I finally reality, uh, you know, reared its ugly head. And uh, I went to college. I went to Catholic University, the Jesuits. And once I, once I started reading Thomas Aquinas, which is, tells you why the Catholics believe that, you know, like the Immaculate Conception, you know, and all that kind of stuff that Mary, Mary was conceived by God. And then he starts trying to figure all this stuff out. And you go, wait a minute. You find out that, that there was a Council of Trent in the 7th century. These, these old guys decided that Mary was a virgin. That's the first time they, and then you go, wait a minute, something's not right here. I actually went to a, I did a, a like a, a week at a, a pre-seminary thing, when I, you know, and uh, I remember coming out and in the lounge there, they had the front page and the sports page of the newspaper. And I was just like, where's the rest of the newspaper? So, oh, well, we, you know, you really don't have enough time to only like read the front page and the sports page. So we don't put out the, I said, well, if you don't have enough time, well, you, then you won't read it, right? Go, well, why wouldn't you put it out? And so it started saying like, oh, this is not sounding, it sounded more like a Russian camp or something. So. Uh, you know, eventually I realized it's probably not my vocation. Somebody to write. Even when I wanted to be a priest, I, I figured I'd be a writing priest, and I figured I could write some funny priest books. I don't know. Funny priest books. Tony says here, very funny. She said, "Make people smile and laugh, and you'll get to heaven." And I do believe that you've earned your ticket to heaven in a whole different. Oh, that's way. very nice of her to say. <laughs> that, that in a whole different way than you originally intended. So, so Jay, so talk to me a little bit about the we're we're known as the COVID crazies on here. How are you and Nancy handling this whole COVID thing? Well, you know, Nancy and I are together almost about everything, and we're handling fine. Except she won't let me. I, she won't watch the news. I have to watch the news in a separate room. She, she won't watch Trump. She won't want. She don't want to see him. And yeah. I think he's funny. I think it's a funny show. I got every day. I go, what did he say today? You know, it's like this is crazy. This is like watching a movie. You know, you can't believe it. The things he he says something and, and he doubles down on him. It's like the, it's how could you you know? And but uh, you know, we're both we both know how we're going to vote. And I can't see how he's going to get reelected. I figure you must, uh, I don't know, I'm curious what you might think of him or whatever, but. Uh, oh, I call him the idiot in chief. I refuse to say his name. I'm like Nancy. I don't want to watch. Although uh, I do listen to some of the things. It's just mind blowing his, uh, his rationale for things. You know, if we test, we have to stop testing because the numbers are going up. I mean, I know, it's, really, it's like, but what's really scary is that he thinks that that makes sense is the thing that's so frightening about that to me. I don't well, know. I was thinking, you know, I don't know, is this guy really smart guy and he's, he knows what he's doing and, and he's got a strategy. And now I just think he's a total idiot. He's, no, he's, I think he's a total. So do you, guys, what do you guys do about groceries? Do you go to the store? Do you order groceries? How do you handle groceries? In charge of, yeah, we go to, we go to the store, you know, we go to Nancy's favorite store, Gelson's where the line's a little smaller, but you still got to wait in line. Although there's a, you know, it's nice to be a little older. You got a senior time in the morning now, mm -hmm. but we always wear masks. And uh, you know, how do you feel about the, how do you feel about the mask wearing? What about all these yeah, people that are complaining yeah. about mask wearing? You must you must have seen the gal in uh, in Trader Joe's, right? That was right up here who, who refused to wear a mask. Tell her we don't want to be mask holes. Nancy says we don't don't want to be mask holes. So uh, she's trying <laughs> to get some comedy into this. 
<laughs> mask. Hold- I, I know, you know, it only makes sense to wear. I try to wear gloves too if I know I'm going to touch stuff. Is you know, I don't want to give it to any of my kids or uh, grandkids or anybody that I see. We we basically, you know, like you mentioned, Tremosa, we go down to see most of my kids and grandkids. We all wear. We don't. We stay distance and wear. Okay, masks. I was going to ask you about that. How do you handle the grandkids and everything? And how do you I don't handle them? I mean. You know, of course, my grandkids now are ones in high school and ones mm-hmm. freshman college. So uh, they're smart. And they wear masks and, you know, we don't do stupid things. You socially distance? Do you go in the house? No, no. not in their house. I have a house right there and then their house is next door. So they, they're in their house. And we, we go out on the patio and we'll talk. But, uh, you know, I don't know if you know the South Bay beaches. They're closed again now. For a while, they closed the beach. And, it, and then they opened it over. Memorial weekend, it was full of people with no, wearing no masks. We uh, they've just changed a lot of the, the the laws in LA in the last day, in the last 24 hours. They're closing bars, their restaurants are not going to be able to serve indoors. Um, movie theaters, my son is a general manager of a movie theater, they're not going to open. Um, they just said no gatherings of people that aren't in your family, which is your bubble that you live with. They're stopping that again. But it's so crazy to me because Newsom was so wonderful at the beginning. He shut us down right away. He got the numbers down, and then California went crazy again. What happened? Well, I wish I knew. You you pointed out something that a mystery to me. I don't know. He seemed like he was in, knew what he was doing, and then he stopped. And now yeah. it's gone crazy. It's gone absolutely crazy. He's up, hasn't he? It seems like he's going to put a hold on his stuff now again. Well, you but know, I. I think we we really need another shelter in place order because people are attic. I think people got are people going to go along with that? That's the thing. You see these crazy people that say, you know, I want my freedom. I want I want to. You can't make me wear a mask. I mean, that they don't wear seatbelts or what? What do they think? You know, it's this. Who who is this? Who is this for? It's for for you. And it's like well, I'm not going to wear a mask. Well, the, one of was a, one of the representatives back from Texas, wherever he's from, said, I'm not wearing a mask until I get COVID. I mean, it's a little bit late if you're, I mean, it's, it's no sense at all. So, so yeah, I, I assume you do too, wear your mask. Yeah, okay, so how is it in your neighborhood? Because in my neighborhood, I'm in a sleepy little town and I go out for a speed walk and they're not, no, no, nobody's wearing masks. I go to this little park in Hollywood, they're not wearing masks. Are they talking together? Are they, are they six feet apart at least? They're not. They're not really observing uh, socially distance very well. No. You bring up a good. I've said a couple things. Like I don't ever. If I see some, I'd say no mask, huh? And they'd say no or whatever. I don't take it any further than that because I figure, actually, this is basically Nancy's neighborhood, and I don't want to get any fights with any. But you know, how stupid can you be? You know, it's. But when you go to the stores, especially grocery, I've seen everybody has a mask on, and everybody's like staying, you know, not too close to the other. I don't know if you noticed that. I haven't been in a store in four months. Well, you just get your stuff delivered to you? I get everything delivered. And it, that's a compromise, quite a bit of a compromise. But, yeah, it's yeah. just a decision that I made. I told you I'm crazy. I haven't let my son in my house. My boyfriend bought me full-size body bags, plastic body bags, head to toe, so that I could hug him and my son. Oh, wow. Well, that's nice. The lady's very thoughtful. Nancy yeah, just insists on going to the store. She has to squeeze her own peaches and yeah. pick out her own bananas. They have to be just a certain shade and everything. So. 
the fruit is a big problem when you have somebody else doing your shopping. Not good. It's, I throw a lot of stuff away. Not a good thing. So Jay, tell us, there's another part of your personality that I think is, I know that you're a poker player. We'll get into all of that, but you, you've created a board game, a Sherlock Holmes board game. How, yeah. how did that come to be? Well, that was, uh, that was, you know, before, while I'm thinking about it, I just saw Salima Nimoy, who's a, who's a writer. This is a book you would love. I don't recommend books to people. Usually. This this is a book about our age group, you know. I mean, if you remember Motown and uh, the 60s and 70s, there's a, there's a book that just came out. Uh, Salima wrote it. It's called Since I Lost My Baby, based on a true story. She was actually on Oprah telling about she got pregnant. The baby was taken from her. In those days, you know, you, you gave up your babies. You couldn't get abortion. But uh, the writing is just unbelievable. And he has a writer... I wow. was blown away, and I think you'd enjoy. I know you got your books there and everything. It's called "Since I Lost My Baby" by Salima Nimoy, and it just sat on Amazon. Just do a little promo for it because I love it so much. You can go to anywhere in a book and just start reading, and the words are just the, it's just so well written, and you just wow. can't stop. You got to go. To, but anyway, the Baker Street game, yeah, that's uh, you know when I was before I started writing TV, one of the things I I got into creating some board games, and uh, how, how did that happen? Where did that come from? Well, when I was a kid, I used to play, you know, board games all the time. But there was basically psychology today did a, a series of topical board games. They had a board game called Black and White, Blacks and Whites, where you could play either as black or white in the city. And there were there were topical games in psychology today, and I thought that was kind of clever. Wow. And and I did a game called Beat Detroit that was kind of a spoof on games, but it was about planned obsolescence, where you start with a new car and you get warranty coupons, which are Turn out to be good for nothing. And if you can go 50,000 miles before you go broke or your car falls apart, you beat Detroit. And that became, it was just kind of a joke thing, but it became a bestseller on, you know, wow. the, the Detroit. It was on the front page of the Detroit News. And the nightly news, NBC, did a little thing. It was, it was good for news doing a little, like, joke thing at the end because that's when recalls were happening. You know, recalls were all over, like, in wow. 70, 72 and stuff. So... Then games companies start asking me, hey, you got any other games? And I end up doing like nine board games. But one of them was the Sherlock Holmes game. Company said to me, we want to do a, uh, we'd like to do a detective game. You got any detective games? So I thought, who's the best, you know, the most famous detective? Sherlock Holmes. My name happened to be Moriarty, you know, and <laughs> Moriarty's big. I think it was just coincidence. When I was a kid, I, people would say, oh, Professor Moriarty. I didn't know what they were talking about. But anyway, I did this game, Sherlock Holmes. Did 20 cases. It was like Clue. When I was a kid, I played Clue. And I always figured at the time I was playing Clue, how come it's always a somebody's killed, you know, it's, it's Mr. Green in the ballroom with a rope. Or what was the motive? Why did he kill him? Right. You could do a game where you'd actually have a motive. And it wasn't just a murder. Maybe it was insurance fraud or but you'd have a reason. But the thing is, that, so I wrote these cases. But once you solve them, you know the case. So you can't really play it again. You already know the Solution. So I figured, well, you 20 of them. By the time you play 20, you're going to put the game on a shelf and you'll never see it again anyway. The first call we got was from the Playboy Bunnies who said, this is uh, Hef's favorite game. We all play it. Where can we get more cases? Wow. We all figured, geez, we don't want, you know, bunnies to get their panties in a twist. So we wrote 20 <laughs> more cases. And eventually it got up to just, just now it did a couple of years ago, the, um, Put out a deluxe version, 200 cases. 
So we would sell these extra cases, and you buy the game, and then you'd buy set number one, two, three, four, all the way up to ten. Well, we got 200. Now there's a deluxe version. If you go on Amazon, you'll see you'll see the deluxe version and the original version of 221 B Baker Street. The new version's old, newly designed, but it's become selling in six different countries. It's translated into uh, the latest one was Romania. It's translated into Romanian, into Portuguese, and Brazil. And um, you know, it's a big seller in the UK and England. Sherlock Holmes. And, wow. And, uh, so it's. That that the other games kind of go like two three years. Did a game with Dr. Lawrence Peter called the Peter Principle game, and got to meet him. Uh, but yeah, this Baker Street game just goes on because they're you know Sherlock Holmes. You'll have TV series, you know. There's usually always a TV series or a movie or right. something to keep Sherlock Holmes alive. Uh, I wonder. I wonder if people are playing more board games now that there's the stay at home. Well, we hope so, you know. That's what I hope people are reading books and fighting board games. Uh, but, yeah, that's, you know, in Ohio, you got bad weather a lot of time, and you, you, you stay inside and you play you play games. Everybody has a basement because you got to have a place to go down. And, right. you know, there, there are no basements. Have you ever seen a basement in California? No. you got basements. The weather's too nice. They're outside. they got a backyard or a pool or whatever, you know. Actually, you grew, in, you grew up in California, by the way. Or well, in New York, in New York, yeah. Yeah, everybody's from New York. And, and you from the city? Did you grew up in the city. Yeah. I grew up in the Bronx and in Queens. Oh, that's where Nancy was uh, born in the Bronx. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I lived in Manhattan for about 40, 30 years or something. But yeah, uh, but but I was just going to say, my son and his friends. My son's twenty six, and he and his roommates and everything. They play board games all the time. <laughs> That's what we do. Big deal now. Board games are really big. In the last five, six, seven, eight years, you know, there's actually places where, like the Game House in Glendale, where people just go for board games. In Europe, it's really taken off in Europe. I've been over. They have in uh, Essen, uh, Germany, what they call the Essence Village. Once a year, 300,000 people from all over the world playing board games. Oh my it's god! Big. That's it's a big, big thing. You would you would think that that you know. Kids be playing games on their phone or their computers or whatever. Sit around playing board games, and uh, Tova just said uh, that it would be great to have a COVID crazy board game. Land on a spot mm -hmm. and you get extra and you get extra plastic. You know, it's actually Jay. How much do you think? You have masks in there. Well, how much do you think this? This is a pretty big thing going on, and so. We can't ignore it. Movies are going to have to acknowledge the fact that this is part of now our history, right? Television shows are going to have to incorporate the virus. So how much do you think this is going to impact artistic culture moving forward? Do you think it will? Yeah, it's going to change the world, I, I think. I mean, I said to Nancy, I mean, you can, this is the future. Uh, you and I talking this, you know, ordinarily, I'd be at your house or whatever. Right. And, and this is the Zoom thing. Everybody's on Zoom now. I haven't quite figured out how to do it because I got my, my uh, you know, uh, my IT expert here to show me. But people, everybody's going to know how to do this. You'll all have Zoom. You'll, you'll, you know, meetings. Why, why get in your car, spend gas money, look for a parking place, deal with traffic when you can just have your meeting on Zoom? You know. Do you think that's? Do you think that's? I think on the one hand, we're going to be so hungry to interact again that once we're able to, we're going to want to leave our homes on the one hand. But on the other hand, no traffic, no gas, no pants. Yeah. Well, no, I think you're going to eventually get be able to go places. And, of course, if you want to go to a 
nightclub or something, you're going to have to go out and mm-hmm. meet people. But there will be things like meetings and like mm-hmm. offices. I mean, if, if mainly your place, your office is a place to have meetings, I mean, you don't need an office anymore. Right. Go, go on. There's a lot of things you could do. Doctors love it. I have friends who are doctors. It's like, this is great teleconferencing. You know, people come to them for every little thing. Right. They can just handle it. Oh, yeah, take three of these pills or I'll write you a prescription and let me know. Let me hear you cough. Let me, you know, there's some that some things you got to be in person for, but a lot of it you can do just like this. And it's easy for the doctor. Interesting. It's easy, it's easy for a lot of us. You know, I mean, I'm working, doing things every day, but you don't have to go. You get out, you roll out of bed, you do something, then you're a little tired, you go back to bed, then you get out of do it. It's like your whole, it's all, everything's different, you know? It is. Uh, there are a lot of people who are, you know, whether you're working at Staples Center and you want the Lakers to come back or wherever, a lot of jobs are changing. But then again, there are other jobs like my grandson, uh, DoorDash, you know, delivering food and stuff now is a big deal. You know, he's, everybody wants their food delivered. And I don't know. How's your son? How's your, son, how's your, your kids feel about the, this COVID thing? Are they... They're coping okay. Well, my kids both lost their jobs, at least temporarily. My son was the ma- is the general manager of a movie theater. My daughter had just become a bartender at Tribeca Grill in New York, and everything's closed. So they're getting good unemployment, and they're fine with it right now. But when the government takes back that 600 a week, they're not going to be too happy being on unemployment. So I think they'll be happy to go back to work at that point. Um, uh, it just change because you have – you have tools, technical tools that you're just learning how to use. And people are going to figure out, you know, brilliant minds who are out there now, young people, old people, whatever, are going to figure out ways to use these kind of technical things that we have access to now, you know. You know, phones that are computers and whoever thought you'd be carrying it's around a phone. Is monetizing. You know, it's like I can do this. I can't do my literary salon. You know, I might be able to switch it to online, but there's no way to mo- really monetize it online. You know, people are putting tip jars and stuff like that, virtual tip jars. Yeah, but- you got to start charging to go on there and stuff. That's what people will do. You know, I think and it'll make it's sense. Go there. Yeah, but it's hard because there's so much available now. Everybody's doing concerts online, right? Everybody's doing stuff. Everybody's got a podcast because they're not doing anything else. So. It, it's going to be a tr- it's tricky. Like I know you're an avid. How do you feel about sports being played again? Are you are you a sports fan? Yeah, you know. In fact, Nancy and I, Nancy's really gotten into the Clippers, and, mm-hmm. and I'm in the Lakers, and so we we had we had season tickets for both of them, and uh, we were looking forward to Clippers and Lakers. You know, getting matching each other, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. now there's no Clipper games, Laker games, or any games. So that's that's kind of a uh, you know. But I guess they're talking about starting up. I mean, everything is changing. But when you look at it, as I'm sure you do, this is a life or death thing. This is we've never experienced. I mean, who do you know that would, if you could go to a Laker game or something, would you go? I guess there are people out there who would. And they're talking about baseball, you know, who and Dodger fans want to go back. I mean, would you want to sit? There's no social distancing. I don't My understand why people would do that. You know? And he's... He, do, he believes this is a total mistake with baseball. He's convinced that as soon as they start playing, they're all going to get sick and it's going to be over very, very quickly. How could it not I, with them on top of each other like that? I, I don't know. I don't see how that can work. Um, yeah, but, 
Just say, I saw Dr. Fauci said, you know, we're liable not to have a vaccine for a couple of years. You know, you can't get too. So I don't, I heard him say not until the new year. God, I hope it's not a couple years. Oh, God. I, hope, <laughs> I, hope, uh, I can't even think about that. One day at a time, I think. Uh, so as a poker player, how, I mean, would you play cards? No, that's like, that's unfortunate because that's like the last thing you'd want to do because you're handling cards, you're handling chips that everybody else is handling. I understand in Vegas there are very few casinos that are open right now. They do have poker, and they wash. One thing they do is wash their chips every two hours, like all the chips are washed. Well, I don't know if that's you know every two hours you still got cards. I guess they're washing cards, but you people, you know, you got people at the table, and uh, crazy. And I understand some people wear masks and some people don't. Well, that's like the worst thing you could be doing. But you know, I just saw where American Airlines is here, full planes now. They're, they're they, other, the reason Delta, is well, you can't social distance on a plane. Well, you don't fly them, but, you know. Delta Airlines, 500 employees uh, COVID positive and 10 deaths, Delta Airlines. And I saw a picture on, a, on an airplane. I don't know which airline it was, but they were sitting every seat. They were not keeping middle seats open. And a guy with a, um, uh, with a Make America Great Again hat on had his mask over his eyes and the hat kind of says it all. So I don't know how people can fly. I, I think that's absolutely insane, but people are making these choices. I, I don't really understand it. So so how, I didn't ask Nancy when she was on briefly, how is we is WeSpark operational with? Um, yeah, here she can tell you, but they're operating, they have programs online now. Uh -huh. you know, they just have, they have a brand new office now that they have it as a building, I mean, a wonderful. It was all remodeled, this brand new place that they rented, and they haven't even had a chance to move into it yet. But I uh, hear you want to answer your oh, WeSpark? Yeah. Well, we tell yeah. us, because so, I want everybody out there to know about WeSpark. Tell us, just give us the, the cliff notes of WeSpark so people can be supported. So WeSpark is a nonprofit, 501c3, that offers free services for cancer patients and their families. And what it does is that the... the Programs are, are, of course, support groups, but then a number of programs that help alleviate the physical and emotional side effects of a cancer diagnosis. So, you know, part of that is a community and being together and, you know, people really miss it. But we pretty quickly got things up and running online and everybody was nervous about it. But now they love it. And, you know, the cancer patients want to know that we're going to keep on doing this. Right. Um, people who are doing cancer solo, which is one group. And the bereavement groups want to meet in person, but you know, we can't, yeah, they want to get together, you know, they're lonely. And, uh, but for now we can't, it's just not, it's just not possible, but we're having a lot of great things online and uh, we're adding more this month. So very exciting. And like I said, we have this gorgeous office that we were waiting for that was designed. Oh my God, it's so gorgeous. Every day I'd go into work and I go, oh my God, this is paradise. I love it. We opened and literally three weeks later, <laughs> I came in, a new employee was starting. I said, sorry, we're closed in the office. But anyway, we'll be, you know, people are getting services and that's what matters. And um, we do as much as we can, you know. So a bunch of your friends are on right now. Marlene is saying, Mar Marlene is saying, Jay's book is great. Jay's book and Beth Grant is on saying hi. Um, yes, we sparked. Uh, Marlene just put the link for we spark on the. Of course, she did. She's a development director. 
was Vanessa's got a bunch of friends. You see, uh, they've been good, good book supporters. All our friends. It's wonderful. Uh, Cindy asked, "What shows do you like that are on the air now?" Uh, who's asking, Cindy Beagle? Yeah. yeah, I think Curb Your Enthusiasm is uh, hilarious, and uh, you know, certainly Modern Family was a, was a terrific show. That's not on. But now you know you've got. I mean, what Nancy and I watched, of course, was uh, Fleabag. When we discovered Fleabag, oh. that was great. There's also a show called Catastrophe. I love Catastrophe. That that's I'd recommend Catastrophe and Fleabag. Mm -hmm. But really, television I think is great now. It's a whole different thing. You know, when I was doing TV, there were three stations. That was it. You know, and eventually Fox came along, so you got four. But now there's so many choices: Netflix and Hulu and you know, you're discovering new shows like we, um, the McMillions. Have you seen McMillions? That, I haven't. Uh, it's, a, it's a documentary and it's like, what is it, 10 episodes or something? Yeah. You know, somebody told me about it. It's, it's a true, it's uh, about the uh, McDonald's, uh, the uh, Monopoly game at McDonald's. They had this Monopoly thing. And then they found out somebody was getting the answers. And giving them to the people they knew. It's this, and the FBI gets involved. Wow. Nancy didn't want anything. I said, it's McMillions. What? And I said, watch 10 minutes of it. Let's see. We watched 10 minutes and we'll watch it. Second one through. It's really fascinating. It's it's the funny show, and it's real. And it's, the show, basically, the first show, you fall in love with the one guy who starts to tell the stories, this young FBI guy. Huh? He's so cute and oh. so pretty. And so he thinks he's really funny, laughs at himself all the time. But they always leave you the cliffhanger and you get a big fish hook in your mouth. But you you cannot, you can't write these characters. These characters, like out of a, I don't know what, the Sopranos or this or that. You have to see it. I'm telling you, you love it. I think it's on Netflix now. It was originally on HBO, but I think it's on Netflix now. But okay. you'll love it. It's really what are you binging now? What are you binging now? No, we finished already. Yeah, we had every episode. So. What, what are you binging now? Uh, gee. I'm what about to go into, I'm diving into season two of The Politician. You know, my kid said season two was so much better than season one. I, I couldn't get through season one. I, I loved it. I loved it. It just, it really hooked me. And okay. anyway, I'm, gonna, I'm going in for two. They love two. They sure. said two was great. Was uh, unorthodox. What was it called? Yeah. I was. I, I just binged uh, Schitzel. However, you said what? Oh yeah, the other one. The second one. I watched unorthodox, and then I watched. I I I cried when it was over. I missed them so much. Um, I'm now binging Friday Night Lights. Did you ever watch Friday Night Lights? No, but I want to see it. I got to tell you, I stay up all night long every night. I can't turn it off. It is so good. It's great, it's great escape when you get into a show that you really uh, get interested in. Like the character. And it's like cut right from the headlines. I mean, Black Lives Matter, like they did a lot of very uh, political things. And uh, yeah, it's amazing how timely it is. You, know, you mentioned Cindy. Cindy's a, a sitcom writer. What is Cindy watching? What's a good, what are good sitcoms today? Uh, Cindy, Cindy, tell us what you're watching these days. Uh, did you watch Afterlife, by the way? I watched two episodes. Yeah, that was enough for me. What? Well, see, Afterlife. I'm not a Ricky Gervais fan, but I loved Afterlife. Loved it. I think it's a great idea, but isn't it kind of boring after a while? It's like I Groundhog Day. Every day he's going to kill himself, but not that day. 
I think if you go back in and watch it, it was actually wonderful. Um, yeah. for me, you I think it's like your and you liked it. I did, and I but I love all the shows that you mentioned. I've I've watched Catastrophe. It's like oh my god, there's not going to be more. I love Catastrophe. I, I just all those shows are fantastic. They, I'm waiting for The Handmaid's Tale to come back. I heard it's not going to be till next year. Yeah. That was another great one. Well, I, all right, Jay. So I've kept you way longer than I promised, but I'm I'm so thank you so much for doing this. It was lovely to get to know you. Um, we've 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 sat at a couple of events and at a couple parties, but I've never really talked to you before. So it was really nice to have a well, chance. It was a real honor to to be on your show and to talk to you and meet you. And yeah, I, I'm I'm sure uh, you've got some. I, I'm interested in your past and your. You're acting, and uh, you're a book writer too. I should be entering, interviewing you. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you. Well, maybe maybe I won't see it till I see you online again. But well, right. we're together at a Valentine party or something. That that those things may not be happening for a while, especially oh, the singing part. And when you got to sing, and I know, to go into another person's house. Cindy says she watched The Handmaid's Tale for comedy, uh, Curb, and Dead Like Me. Me too. Yes. <laughs> Those are women's shows. Those are all women's shows. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Jay. And thank I you. Thank you for, uh, so for everybody out there, Jay's book, Honky in the House, and it's available on Amazon. And um, where can they get your your um, Baker Street game? Is that on Amazon? Well? Amazon. That's on Amazon too. Yeah, you, everything's online now these days. Uh, Excellent. Well, thank you guys so much. Nancy, I want you back on because a lot of the COVID crazies weren't around when we did our interview two years ago. Well, as it turns out, everyone's very available. <laughs> I know, you could get on to talk about image deal and that kind of thing. Is that what's pe what are people binging these days? I don't know, maybe you've already done that, but that that's an interesting conversation, you know. Yeah, well, that's part of the daily conversation. What we're watching, because that's it keeps us going, right? What else? I haven't, I haven't you know, uh, shooting the shit with uh, with Vicky. I've, I've turned on whenever I turn on, go through with my TV. Somehow it jumps up there, but I never watch the whole thing. Is that something I should watch? Is that for guys too? Yeah, we, we have a number of guys. Guys, you want to shoot the shit with women? We have a number of guys that shoot the shit with us. You know, all we're doing basically is staying connected, and that's what it's all about: is is staying human, staying connected. The 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 conversation is so important to continue because it's too easy to get really. Some of us are alone through this, and it's a way to stay connected. So, and this was a great way. And thank you so much. And I, I look forward to the day when we can do a Women Who Write and have you in the living room and the women will be able to ask you questions live, men too. And um, maybe we'll figure out a way technologically to do that while we're still in uh, stay at home. But thank you so much, Jay. Nancy, I love you. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Um, everybody, um, I will see all of you tomorrow on Shooting the Shit. And uh, uh, don't forget to get Jay's book, Honky in the House, and check out Baker Street, the board game. And uh, thanks again, Jay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.